Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Chats with Creatives podcast. This is a super exciting special episode with the gorgeous Emily Goddard. I cannot believe that she took some time out of her day and came to speak with me. It was just the most beautiful, generous, love-filled, gorgeous time and I am so excited to share this chat with you. And I am still pinching myself because she is an absolute star. Emily Goddard is an actor and theatre maker. She has been in shows at the Melbourne Theatre Company. She's worked with Dirty Pretty Theatre. She's been on at the Old Fits. She's toured the UK on a national tour um, in a show called Mess by Caroline Horton, which we speak about a little bit in the podcast. She's the creator of the critically acclaimed Buffon anti-bonnet drama This Is Eden, which was on 45 Downstairs and Hot House. She had two seasons of This Is Eden at 45 Downstairs and it also became a part of the 2020 VC Theatre Studies playlist, which is crazy, especially in what 2020 has been. So it became a filmed version of the play, which would have been amazing. Emily has also been nominated for three Green Room Awards for Outstanding Female Actor, which is just phenomenal. She is an inspiration and a clowning queen and just the most gorgeous person. And this chat is super open and honest. And it's really important to me that we all understand each other's experiences, particularly this year during lockdown in Melbourne, which was quite um, intense. And both Emily and I being artists in this particular lockdown, (laughs) in this particular corner of the world, it was just really therapeutic and also heartwarming to talk to Emily about her experience during this time because it has been really hard and it has made a huge impact. And I just hope that there are some little tidbits and little pieces of this conversation that mean as much to you as they did to me. If they do, absolutely let me know. I would love to hear from you all. This podcast kind of is still going because of you, because of you guys who keep contacting me and letting me know how much these conversations are impacting you and how much you're connecting with them. And that's so exciting. The more you let me know, the more you review these podcasts and the more you interact with our social media, the more we can continue this relationship. And that's exactly what I want to do. So that's really exciting. Let's jump into it. This is The Clown Inside with Emily Goddard. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for being here. I always take my watch off when I work. Do you do that? No. Like if I get to an audition or in rehearsals, I never wear my watch. And I think I'm just in this habit of taking it off. So as soon as I sat down and I took it off, isn't that weird? Is it a thing that started as like you don't want to like bump it or you don't want to tell the time? I think I thought that it was unprofessional in rehearsals. I think I was told sometime to not wear a watch. It's like a marker for me that I've arrived at work. It's nice though. <laughs> it's really weird. I've never told anyone that either. Um, how, how has your week been? How has my week been? Good. It's been a good week. It's been busy. I was doing some filming for a show that had to stop for COVID and then it started again. So I wrapped on that on Tuesday and I bought a Christmas tree on Wednesday, which I haven't done. 
Ever? Why oh, no, I have. Me and my cousin used to buy real ones when oh. we lived together. And then I've just had like a branch the last few years from the garden. But I was worried about my little kitten with the branch. Oh, so okay. I thought it might be safer to get like a little small tree, <laughs> like a fake one. Okay. But I couldn't find one anywhere. They were really, really <laughs> expensive. Really? Yeah, like stupidly. And I ended up, this is what happened. You know, when you finish a job and you have a bit of a come down, sometimes it's really intense. Like if I've been doing a show, it's really full on. And the next maybe week, I'm just like, what's happening? And I feel sad or unsettled or, but I guess it was a bit different with this, with the show, because it was sort of in bits and it was broken up and I didn't have a huge part to play on it. But still the next day I was like a bit kind of what am I doing and then I found myself in Chadston looking for a plastic tree and I couldn't find one anywhere. And I was standing in David Jones and there was this $150 plastic tree and I was like that's absurd. (laughs) And I reckon I stared at it for like 15 minutes going – but, you know, if I don't get it, like where where will I find one? Is it? And I'm like, what do you think? Why are you even thinking about spending that stupid amount of money on a dumb tree? So I found one in the end and it was much cheaper than that. So <laughs> anyway, it's a weird story to tell you, but that's how my week's been. A bit kind of busy and then strange. Yeah. Like it's a weird time right now. <laughs> it's it's sort of suddenly time. Christmas. But we haven't even been allowed to leave the house and interactions are weird also. Mm. And exhausting, I find. (laughs) I've I've had a few um, moments where a group of people have come together and people are like, so how was lockdown for you? And I'm like, I feel like that's such a massive question and it's sort of, it's asked so casually, like, so how were your holidays? I think, how do I begin to, how do we really begin to articulate it? I feel the same. I feel whenever someone asks that question... And quite often it's someone who hasn't experienced lockdown in the way that yeah, Melbourne has. Yeah. Like I can't I can't explain the experience. I can't explain it. And it wasn't good. It wasn't dreadful. It was just this really odd time that was so up and down. Like it, yeah. it doesn't – yeah, it's so hard to explain because if you explain one day of your lockdown, even if your days looked similar, like if you weren't working and you're kind of repeating your day-to-day movements, the emotional difference between each hour yeah. in that day or each day was just like massive. Totally. And there was a sense of kind of endurance, wasn't there? Oh, like, absolutely. Okay, you know, especially going back into the second one and – having, okay, six weeks and then halfway through that it was another six weeks and then I can't even remember how long it went. I mean, it seemed like forever. Mm, But now for it to be out and I remember in it thinking, okay, well, when I can hug someone again or when I can go outside, I'm going to appreciate everything. And I am appreciating things, but it's also there's a kind of normality that comes back very quickly Mm. that's strained as well. (laughs) You're like, did that happen? Was there really a time not long ago when I could leave the house once really in in a day, not go further than five kilometres and like be home by 7pm, not see anyone, touch anyone. And then to be now in this space where it's really, I mean, so amazing. We've all worked so hard for it. But for the rest of the world to still be in this turmoil, that's also, there's a real disconnect there. I still feel like I'm holding my breath all the time. It's not really over, is it? It's also interesting how things are kind of coming back, but 
I don't know, like it feels weird to me to think about having booked my first like theatre tickets the next mm. year and just thinking like it won't be like I won't be squished into theatre works with like people on either side of me like no, our legs touching and like. It's all going to be so regulated for mm. so long, isn't it? Yeah, even like distanced seats and mm. limited capacity. I feel like, wow, what will it be like performing for 20 people? I mean, it will probably be lovely in a small space. Being at La Mama with 30 people is a nice place to perform. I'm really excited about like a few theatres have released their program for the year and man, those first few shows, like I'm I'm so excited to see them but also like so impressed and awed by the yeah. performers and, yeah. and the people involved in those shows because they're like, they're leading the way. Yeah, they are and they've been working on, on their know. shows all through this time and yeah. It's amazing. I can't wait. And I think it's giving me a lot of hope. How did you get to be where you are now? Like, Where did it all begin? Someone asked me that the other day. They're like, okay, just, it was an interview. They said, can you just like give us a very kind of brief story of your life? (laughs) Well, I was born in Melbourne. I grew up in Mount Waverley. I'm the youngest of three. I've got two older brothers. And I feel like maybe that is part of why I became an actor. My parents weren't particularly creative. My mum is an amazing sewer, um, but she was a teacher of the deaf. And my dad is a really great artist, but he never, he worked in HR and never really had a chance to pursue his art when he was younger. I loved dancing. I really, I was obsessed with dancing and I wanted to be a professional ballerina. Wow. Yeah, I think when I was a child, I loved performing because everyone was really quiet, Mm -hmm. like everyone sort of listened. And I think that's one of the things that I fell in love with that really kind of got me into it, dancing first and then acting. That My house was always so noisy and people always talking over each other. And when I got up and we had like a little step in at my kitchen that kind of became this stage. And whenever I did a performance, everyone had to be quiet. I loved dancing and then I, when I was in grade six, I auditioned for the VCA. One of many times I auditioned for the VCA and was rejected. This was my first rejection from the VCA and so I just went to a normal high school and that's when I started getting into drama because I had a really amazing drama teacher, really, really, really amazing. And I started to realise that whenever I went to the ballet with my mum, I would always watch the acting and not really the dancing or even when I was performing myself in my concerts, I'd always be given the character parts and I was like, oh, no, that's really what I love. So I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. And then when I finished high school, I auditioned again for the VCA (laughs) and I got put on the waiting list. Torture. And they'd said, you know, you probably won't get in because you've just finished school. But then they were like, well, yeah, if someone doesn't take their place, then it's yours. So I kind of sat there by the phone for the whole summer because it's really all I wanted to do. And I was so excited that I'd gotten through so far Mm because I really hadn't expected that. And so I didn't get it. No one said no. So I ended up at Monash doing a double degree in law and performing arts. Wow. So I did like a year and it was really, the performing arts was very academic and I just really wanted to be an actor and I was really frustrated. I felt like I I really didn't have a good time. 
And so I went back to the open day at VCA and John Bolton was the head of acting at the time and I went up to him and I said, look, if I don't get in next year, I, I've got to go overseas otherwise I'm just going to – like I have to study, I have to train. And he wrote Philippe Gaulier's name on a piece of paper and I went home and I looked it up. This was in 2004 and I was like, that's it, that's the school I'm going to. That's what kind of led me there to begin with. I just loved the idea of somebody teaching me about pleasure with theatre and Gollier believes that theatre is as serious as a child's game and I remember seeing that on the website and being like, no, I want to learn about that. So I had a bit of inheritance from my grandma and I deferred uni and took myself to Paris when I was 20 and it changed everything I thought acting should be. I it just flipped it all around. I was very much like I really loved drama and I really wanted to be a serious actress and really kind of what I, I guess I'd experienced of acting to that point was very much about like accessing truth and feeling real truth and Gollier's whole philosophy is about pretending and the pleasure to pretend gives the illusion of truth. And then the audience buys that illusion so they believe it to be real. But if we spend too much time like obsessing about something being real or kind of bringing up our own pain, then the audience is watching us in pain and they can't dream around us. So there's not this kind of imaginative space that the audience enters. So that was a kind of flip for me. Yeah, so I did six months and then I had to come back. I ran out of money and I ended up going back twice at, at Gollier you can study in kind of sections. You don't have to do the whole two years at once. Okay. I ended up going three times to complete the whole two years at three different times and I got scholarships and funding and great support to go back and finish it. So it wasn't until 2010 that I completed it and I'd also finished my performing arts in between at, at Monash so that I had a degree because apparently it was important to have a degree <laughs> which I was really detesting at the time as well. Looking back, it was really good. It's such an intense place to study that it was nice to be able to kind of come back here and do some shows and put what I'd learned into practice and then kind of work out what I still wanted to learn and then go back. Yeah, and then since 2010, I guess I had that kind of period of coming out of drama school. It was sort of different because it had been a drama school overseas and a lot of people thought it was a clown school, not a theatre school. So there was a sort of bit of a bumpy ride kind of coming into the industry at first here, even though I'd worked a bit before graduating in Paris. And then sort of from, I guess, 2012 onwards, that's when I started getting um, main stage work and yeah, that was, that's how it started, mm. I guess. Wow. So you, you weren't necessarily always interested in clowning. No. So it wasn't the clowning aspect of no. Goulier that took you in. It no, was, actually it was, I thought I'd be crap at clown. Yeah, right. I just was like, oh, this will be fun to learn about. I think you've said before that it's like, it's so much more than just clowning. You study different, different types of theatre and, and all sorts there. Yeah. Yeah. So you study, I mean, the main thing that he teaches is leisure, mm-hmm. which is the game, this idea of pleasure and the pleasure to pretend and then he kind of takes you through a whole range of styles probably similar to some of the stuff that you did at BCA like Neutral Mask, Mm. Greek Tragedy, Shakespeare, Chekhov, Melodrama and then Clown and, and Buffon. Yeah, but I was really kind of I guess I was sort of flippant about those because I thought well they're 
Like a lot of people came to the school for that. And I just had no idea. I really had no idea how hard clown was, what it really was, and how much it could give me as an actor. Because I think we're also trained to want to be really good. Actors want to be good at what they do and they don't want to make mistakes. And clown, you have to fuck it up. Like that's the flop. You have to. (laughs) And you have to be so vulnerable because the things that you're kind of most scared of exposing are the things that are the funniest about you too. So I just found myself crying a lot and that being funny and how glorious. <laughs> the things that you kind of take most seriously about yourself are actually the things that end up being the most funny. It is kind um, of hilarious how seriously we take ourselves. Yeah, and how freeing that is to go, oh, I don't actually have to be scared of that. Like mm. those parts of myself, that humanity and that fear is actually – it's so necessary to share as an actor and it makes us way more interesting and yeah it was such a gift such a gift but clown is really the hardest thing I've ever studied have you studied did you do it at VCA small amounts and was it terrifying when you did it yes yeah it's so dark because so much of the time you're just not funny yeah (laughs) The fear of it was that I wasn't funny, that I yeah. could see everyone else being funny and getting a response and then I just – any amount of response kind of wasn't enough for me to believe that I was funny or like doing yeah. it. Or, yeah, it never felt like a skill of mine. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Because you have to kind of be – you have to be bad at it to be good at it, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like yeah. it's not like stand-up where the joke is funny, clown is – that you tell the joke, no one laughs – And And you feel the failure and then it's funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's really the most wonderful thing. But I feel like there's still this sense here, I feel sometimes that maybe everywhere has this, that Gollier is a real clown school and so you come out of there and people just think that you're going to be like clowning or improvising Mm. actually. So like so many great actors have bits of clown in them. Mm. They don't have to. Yeah, I want to be taken seriously, (laughs) (laughs) don't How was it to train overseas? I'm curious if it was isolating or if it was freeing. I think it was maybe a bit of both. I think it was really freeing because it felt like being in another kind of universe. Mm. And there was a real magical kind of bubble. I think every drama school would have that kind of bubble where you get really close with people. And I think because I was so far away from anyone I knew and anyone who'd known me, there was a sort of sense of being able to just experience everything without having to go home and have a chat with my parents Mm. or... Um, and there was no other pressure of life or it was just there. And training with people from all over the world was also really wonderful because there was no competition. There wasn't any sense of like, oh, when we finish, that person's going to do well. Or yeah. you couldn't really compare yourself to other people because no one was going back to the same country to work really. There might have been three or four Australians, but we were all interested in different things or we we're all different ages. And so that was really, really nice. Because I find the competitive nature of our industry so I really, I just find it so ugly. And sometimes I really embrace it and other times I really shy away from it or sometimes it makes me smaller, sometimes it makes me want to fight harder for what I want. 
But, yeah, I felt like that was a really liberating part of the experience. But I feel like coming home, like I said before, it was sort of a bit harder to be um, – to kind of get representation or sort of get seen at first because there was this sort of – you didn't have the stamp of a drama school and I think – in some ways it would have been easier to enter the industry, but maybe that's just my idea, you know. So interesting you say that because in my eyes, Glia is like it 100% has a stamp of a, of a drama school, but maybe that's because like it's a place that I had once aspired to go to as well and, and it's like kind of on a pedestal for me. But it's also like it's a really well-renowned acting institution. Yeah. So I think it's a stamp. It is a stamp, but maybe – at the time when I came back, it didn't feel like a stamp, like NIDA was a mm. stamp. Yes. Or VCA or WAPA. Yeah. It was like a distant stamp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a distant stamp. But I really wanted at the time to set up an agent's day for people who had distant stamps. And I never did that. But I thought it would be such a nice thing for people who study overseas to yeah. be able to come back and go, okay, we want to showcase ourselves too. Yeah. And we've studied too. And But, you know, it's given me so many wonderful friendships with people around the world and opportunities to work overseas as well that I wouldn't have had if I'd studied here so I think both have their benefits don't Mm. they and really it's just it's such a privilege to be able to have gone there and and to study it all and to do what we do we can obsess about oh maybe this way would have been better or that way would have been better but that's just all stories in the end like we're so fortunate to (laughs) be able to follow this path even though it's hard at times but it's a real gift yeah So I did a workshop with you during lockdown on Buffon. (laughs) (laughs) And in there you shared a little bit about how how that particular style of clown was kind of a way into discovering This Is Eden, I think, or like Mm -hmm. building This Is Eden up into what it became. So I I saw you laugh then. I thought, are you you remembering the workshop? (laughs) No, I loved the workshop. I loved it. It was really nice to get an insight into the background of This Is Eden because I saw it in your first round of performances. I think Mm. I must have been in first year. Was Mm. it? Did it happen in 2016? Was that the first run or 2017? Um, We did it at Hot House in 2015 (gasps) and then it was 2017 at 45, the first one yep. in Melbourne. Okay, yeah. so I saw it in 2017 and then you brought it back again, if I'm mm-hmm. correct. Yes, I did. Um, it and just then, keeps coming back. Yes. And that one I brought my partner to and was like, you must watch this. <laughs> Welcome to Melbourne Theatre. <laughs> and then he left, terrified. <laughs> like, never all. do that to me again. He suddenly understood my obsession with you. <laughs> <laughs> so how did Buffon influence the making of This that Is Eden? That my favourite part, by the way. <laughs> Was it just in the like had you written it all before you started to put it up on the on the floor? Or? No. So this is Eden came about because my mum had discovered convict ancestors mm-hmm. and she'd discovered a female convict ancestor who'd gone to Cascades Female Factory where the show's set. And in 2012, she wanted to take me on this trip around Tasmania to all the places of significance in the life of my female convict sister, mm-hmm. where she arrived and then where she was imprisoned at Cascades and where she was assigned to work and all the places before she came to Melbourne in the 1850s. And I wasn't really interested in the history. I didn't, my experience of convict history was really, really um, limited. I didn't know anything about the women 
and I didn't I just remember everything that I learned at school being really very dull and mm-hmm. very romanticized um, and kind of gimmicky like the ghost tour of Port Arthur mm-hmm. when I was at high school and sea shanties and you know like singing Botany Bay at my primary school concert like really nothing actually about the real experiences so I didn't really I I just wasn't that interested in going but I'd broken up with my boyfriend at the time and I was like oh I'll go to Tasmania with my mum it'd be a nice thing to do and then we went on a tour of the ruins of Cascades and I couldn't believe that I didn't know about what these women had experienced about 6,000 of the overall 25,000 women were sent there. I didn't even know 25,000 women came over here and most of them were young, maybe like 1% or 2% were violent criminals. They were sent over for either their first or second offence, which was usually like stealing stuff, as we know, very minor. And one of the things they told me on this tour was that the women used to make up performances that mocked the authorities. And I was like, what? That's Buffon. And I'd been studying Buffon in Paris. And I was just like so amazed that they did this as a way to rebel, but also to entertain themselves and keep themselves sane. And so I, this was in 2012. I was really inspired at that time to make a show that could really shed light on the experiences of these women and somehow do it through Buffon, like kind of bring to life the women's performances. And I also thought about how if we knew more about this part of our history, would we have more empathy for, for people who are coming here now? And would we, would we realise that we're kind of perpetuating this same kind of cruelty? Uh, so that's kind of what I was interested in to begin with. Uh, But it wasn't until a couple of years later that I really started working on it. The following year in 2013, I went on a tour of the UK with a friend, Caroline Horton. She'd written a show. I studied with her in Paris and she'd made an amazing show. It was a clown show about anorexia called Mess. And we toured it around the UK. And I was so inspired by the way she'd made this. This was her second show. She talked to me about how when she made her first show and her second show, she really just took it bit by bit. Like she didn't try and do the whole thing at once. She just did little development, little development, and things kind of started to fall into place. So I was so inspired by that because I'd had this idea about Eden and it was just sort of sitting there and I hadn't had the time, but probably also the courage to really do something about it. But when I was in the UK, I thought, okay, all I need to do when I get back to Australia is do one little development and see if there's an idea. And I'd worked with Susie D on a show on a a Declan Green play called Moth in 2012 and I'd really loved her energy. I loved how kind of messy she got with things. So I thought, why not? I'm just going to send her an email and see if she's interested. And I thought, I need to pay her. (laughs) I need to pay her, obviously, because she's a professional and we should get paid. Um, But I also thought I need to pay her because if my ideas are so bad, I want her to like stick around for a week (laughs) at least and not like leave, you know, Mm -hmm. like I thought I need to do this properly, pay someone for their time. And I also got a residency. That's what I did. I applied for this little residency at Gasworks. I had like two weeks free space and I got that. And then I um, I asked Susie, I said, do you want to just play with me one week or two weeks part-time and we've got to do a little showing at the end. And I said to her, if it's really bad, we never have to talk about it again. And if it's good, then we can kind of 
do something. Maybe. That was really good because I took all the pressure off it. And she said, yes, I want to work on it. And then we had this crazy showing at the end of the week that we had to do as a kind of requirement of the residency. And people had to pay for the showing as well. Oh, my God. It was so (sighs) stressful. So we had this pressure of kind of – I was like, okay, Buffon and the convicts. And that first development was really trying to work through all of the awkwardness we had around the history and all Mm. the things that we didn't want to do because we didn't want to make some cliché. We didn't want to just kind of keep telling this same bonnet drama story. Mm. We really wanted to break all that apart. But most of the stuff that we came up with in that first time was really kind of cliché, weird stuff because we were just trying to get those ideas ideas out of our heads but we had some really we found some interesting kind of mockery things in that first development and then kind of imagining what kind of characters the women would have mocked and we also kind of discovered this sort of strange blending between present and past which at the time was just me it wasn't the character of Jane but that in the end after the showing that seemed to be the most compelling thing for the audience that kind of feeling of is it the present is it the past there's some kind of strange connection at that time actually I didn't even I hadn't done a huge amount of research so I didn't know so much about the parallels between our immigration debate now our asylum seeker catastrophe catastrophe in the way that we've dealt with it and the the transportation debate of the 1850s that stopped the convicts from coming I didn't know much about that then so there weren't really those parts of it weren't in there yet but what I was really interested in doing was I think once we'd found the characters and the mockery within the mockeries that Mary did in the cell, Mm. I really wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a kind of historical piece because Buffon is also, Buffon is about mocking the audience, the current audience, the audience that's in front of us and laughing at them and exposing the hypocrisy within them and the injustice of the current society. So I didn't just want it to be like, oh yeah, back in, you know, 1839, this character sat in this cell and she like rebelled by doing these mockeries. Like what what are we going to get from that? It's one of the things that has stuck with me so much since seeing it, apart from your performance and the story as a whole, is like how how you force the audience to question what we knew. Like you brought out a map of Australia and you ask the audience, mm. what Indigenous land is this? And no one knows that mm. one of the performances I went to, there was a person down the front who literally knew all the different tribes that lived all along the um, east coast of Australia, which was beautifully impressive. But you bring audience members up onto the stage Mm. and you kind of engage with them and reveal in a mocking, like a gentle way, but also in in quite a confronting way, I think, as Australian citizens that we don't know our history and we don't know, we're not educated (laughs) enough to know Like, as you just said, like, I didn't know that there were 25,000 female convicts that came to Australia, like, and I, and I certainly didn't know that they were put into this factory and into this prison and dealt with in the way that they were dealt with until I saw your show. Um, There's so much. We just don't know. There's huge amount. I didn't know. And that map moment, I was so scared of that moment but um for me I think it is the most kind of the the most interesting and maybe powerful point in the show because it is in terms of Buffon kind of 
flipping the mirror. Absolutely. That's kind of, we, we could laugh at Jane, we could laugh at her ignorance, we could laugh at, and then for the audience to go, oh, okay, no, that's me. I don't yeah. actually, I'm the same. Yeah. Um, and that moment came from, I was standing in the rehearsal room and I had the map and I said to my director and my dramaturg, I was doing some improv stuff as Jane and, and then I broke out of character and I said, I actually, st- I need to still look up the names. And my dramaturg said, you got to keep that in the show. That's going in the show. And I thought, oh, how, what? <laughs> but you know, that. It's that moment the, that you were talking about before, like that kind of thing that you're most. Yeah. Like, yeah. What we're most ashamed of yeah, and what we're most vulnerable. The thing that you have to share. Yeah. And and we think that we're going to be judged for that. And mm. we are like, we should judge ourselves for that. Like, it's not okay that we don't Absolutely. know. And we need to learn more and we need to be more educated. But for, for me to also go, this is a moment, if I'm experiencing this, then a lot of people in the audience are going to experience this. And we need to, I think that's the job of the artist, isn't it? To share our own experience and also to reflect things back and go, hey, this is not okay. And well done for coming to a show about the female convicts. Like mm-hmm. well done for learning about that. But what's the point if, we, if we're not going to be better people now? Mm. Like let's look at ourselves and not just judge the past and go, oh, yeah, wasn't it awful? No, it's still awful. Absolutely. It's still awful for so many people. Yeah, so that that became a, a very important part of the work for me, that it definitely wasn't just a piece of history, that it really looked at how we um, we need to change. I think and it's, I think we are. Yeah. Was, the show was on the VCA playlist this year for students to study the film version of it, the filmed version, not the film <laughs> version. Um, and someone said, one of the students said, do you think Jane will have changed next time you perform this? Do you think Jane will have been changed by the pandemic? And I thought that's a really interesting question because she is meant to be present like in the current time. And I thought probably not, but I think the audiences will be. Mm. And I I hope that that map moment doesn't stay that map moment forever. I hope people can tell Jane and I think they will. I think that that, even is. I think the attitude towards Jane will change because we never wanted her to be like a totally lovable character. We wanted wanted her to kind of get everyone on board as Buffon has to do, like really kind of charm the audience and get them comfortable and then kind of pull the rug out. So we really wanted to make her very lovable and relatable and then we kind of wanted to deconstruct her at the end and show some of her ugliness but – we often found that people just sort of went crazy for Jane and some of the responses from the students were that they didn't like her and they that they really judged her and they didn't think it was right what she was saying and what she was doing. I was like, good, okay, mm. this is – it's interesting making a show back, what, it's five years ago yeah. now and kind of watching – how the the responses kind of start to subtly shift and that's fascinating I definitely think with with presenting it to students like the younger generation is so on top of this yeah (laughs) like the the primary school near my house they they have a indigenous flag on their fence and inside the school they have posters about people in the school from different lands and and it's it's so inclusive and beautiful and a friend of mine's kid he's he's uh, two years old and he goes to just a kindergarten in Richmond but they thank the land for being the land and they thank the sky for being the sky every day and just little things that Mm -hmm. that kind of are bringing I think 
a new understanding of our yeah, history. And they will grow it. up with it yeah. like it's a normal thing as yeah. it should be. It, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Jane is such a fascinating character because she really does. She flips a mirror on society. But if society is kind of moving forward, mm. that mirror. Jane will be left behind. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Jane yeah. will just please older crowds. <laughs> the younger so people will though. throw tomatoes at her. Which is <laughs> really interesting as well. Like yeah. that's another fascinating part of doing this show, just kind of the different responses from different generations. Mm. The older generations kind of, well, some of them, wanting to come in and kind of talk about their convict ancestors and, mm. and then the younger being interested in much more in the politics of the peace. and mm. So fascinating. I, I think about it all the time. Aww. But also just the fact that it comes from, it comes from you discovering that an ancestor of yours was a convict and needing to like share that story and in as you said not in a way like this is a history piece like presenting the similarities of mm. that situation to what's happening today yeah. right now yeah in the same country yeah yeah what is that saying about um if we don't learn from our history we're mm. doomed to repeat it but also <laughs> how important it is to learn our history yeah. which i think is something that's been lacking in the australian school system for way too long yeah we're not taught from a young age the true history. I think we've been so awkward about it. Mm. I think there's so much confusion, shame, guilt. People don't want to look at it. I feel like that's part of it about the past. So glad things are finally changing. Is there something that you struggle with in the industry, whether it be creatively or personally? I think the biggest thing I struggle with... And it's interesting you ask that because I thought, oh, you haven't asked me how we met yet. I thought maybe you didn't want to talk <laughs> about that. We can talk about it now. <laughs> how did we meet, Emily? Kind of like ties into this. We met helping a student with their film. And I remember um, the experience was really strange and kind of awkward because it wasn't led particularly well. And one of the questions I think I was asked as soon as we sat down, I think I just got the script as well, uh, was, um, Emily, have you experienced trauma? <laughs> and instead of saying, why is that relevant? Or I don't know if that's an appropriate question for you to ask actors kind of that you've just met. Or I just sat there quietly and then in my mind kind of went into my past and kind of tried to dig up things that I thought, is that trauma? Is that mm. trauma? It was a really weird experience, wasn't it? It was so weird. I don't know whether I even answered her in the end. I can't remember. I think there was, from memory, that response was something like, I don't know, like what is trauma? Like what in what, <laughs> yeah, like what are you how? talking about kind of? Um, yeah, and I think we kind of dodged it Moved a little bit. It. But it was such an odd way to start. Yeah. Like whatever it was, a morning working with this script. Yeah, it was really, it was just one of those experiences where you go, yep. Well, I mean, I know this was also like a student kind of workshop but I feel like one of the things that I struggle with most is just managing that kind of thing and being able to separate, I guess, my own. I love my work so much, as you do. Like, we do this because we love it. It's an incredibly rewarding thing to do. Mm. It's also difficult, challenging. Like, we work hard, but really there's nothing else like it when you're kind of in the flow of a performance and it's like it's the best thing in the world to me. 
But there is so much. Um, I've been in rooms so often that are just led in a way that just is not really safe or not really um, conducive to kind of free creativity. And I and I struggle with being able to kind of separate my own creative experience from that kind of dysfunction in a room. And I can sometimes, if the project is, if there's a lot of pressure on the project and I really want it to be good, which is most of the time, like I put too much pressure on it, I can really let that stuff in. Mm. And I can spend a lot of energy kind of going, why is, why did they do that? Why is this happening? What is, instead of just kind of going, you know what, maybe they don't know, maybe, and they're not saying they don't know. Like a lot of people in when we're making theatre, I think we're, we're scared because we don't know. We have a lot of uncertainty. We're kind of working towards this goal. We have a script, we have a vision, but we're all kind of walking in the dark a little bit. And I think the best rooms are when we can go, we don't know, but let's discover it together. Let's kind of be open and help each other and have honest conversations and everyone can kind of contribute. And I think it's when people get scared of that and they want to appear like they know everything that sometimes rooms can become very, um, I don't really want to give examples, but they're just like stressful. They Mm. can be really stressful. And sometimes I can just get into that stress Mm. instead of going, that stress is is not my role. My role here is to serve this character and my role is also to protect my own serenity and my own peace of mind so that I can give what I need to Mm. to this character, which is one piece of a big pie. And sometimes I can kind of give my energy away to the whole kind of chaos of the experience and then I have to work really hard to kind of bring myself back. I think that is the biggest challenge that I have. I think it feels very relatable for me. I think it's something that a lot of performers can quite easily do, especially being quite empathetic people and and wanting to do the best that they can. It kind of leaves a bit of an open door to that. Mm -hmm. And then we can be sponges for everything. And so then I'm going home and I'm packing something (gasps) someone said that wasn't really, you know, or I kind of internalise the whole confusion of the Mm -hmm. process rather than just kind of going like distrust it, just wanting to take care of many things instead of my yeah. own stuff. But then there's also when, when we step into a space, like the one that we did step into, there's almost a little bit of uh, a taking advantage of that openness and vulnerability yeah. of asking, have you ever experienced trauma? It's like, yeah. how is that an appropriate question? And and I'm here as an actor, open and vulnerable. Yeah. That's a really kind of dangerous space to enter into yeah. without boundaries or safety nets or anything. Yeah. So you end up managing that <laughs> yeah. instead of the work. Mm. Sometimes I take that really personally. Like I'm like, how dare you make me work on all that crap when you're employing me as an actor and yet there's so much other stuff to kind of sift through and – it's big what we do. Like rehearsals go for four weeks usually, then mm. a production week and then you're on. And it takes a week or two to kind of work out the dynamics of the room. You know, you work with a group of people and then that's it. Mm. And then you're up in front of the audience and it's, it's like a pressure cooker. Mm, absolutely. Um, and some rooms are magic and, of course, nothing's ever going to be perfect and like we need a bit of – it's not going to be all like everyone kind of sitting around – speaking nicely to each other all day like the work we do is stressful and I understand that but sometimes yeah I think that's the thing like I come home and I'm obsessed with one thing rather than being obsessed about my character not always but 
yeah, I think that would be the biggest challenge for me, letting it go, letting it go. Those moments of that kind of challenge, how is it that you continue to work in the industry? Like what is it that keeps you here? Something inside me that tells me that it's really important. But there's definitely been times where I've gone, it's too much. I can't do it. Like it's not worth it. Like coming out, I came out of a show a year or two ago and I was like, I don't think I can go on stage again. The joy of it was gone. It was gone and I was so upset because I thought the whole point of this and all my training was about pleasure and fun and finding that freedom and I thought if I can't have that what's the the flame had gone very small and then thankfully I got to do this is Eden again and kind of like <laughs> woke up again I was like oh no um but that was an interesting one because I had so much more creative control over that yeah I think there is that that I have to sometimes go back to like okay well why did you want to do this when you were younger, like what is it that made you fall in love with it and what is it that made you feel like this was an important thing? And when younger actors talk to me and they go, oh, do you have any advice? I'm always like, yeah, you just remember that what you do is really, really valuable and it's important and we live in a society that doesn't value that or doesn't see that but don't internalise that yourself. We need you. And I, I think I have to kind of go, no, this is this is important because when I'm doing it and when I it works, I feel like, yeah, this is the most important thing I could do with my life. And if it wasn't, why on earth would you have done it? Because there's so much sacrifice. I think it's a really hard thing to stay strong in this industry for an extended amount of time, especially with, as you said, like all of those other factors and elements around you kind of not validating your choice in a way and your passion and your commitment to it. You know, even the most, like the clearest thing at the moment for me is our government just mm-hmm. saying it's not worthy. Mm-hmm. And that as as an artist and, and choosing to live this life, that it's not valid yeah. to our government, yeah. to people in these big rooms at big tables making decisions for us, yeah, saying that that's not what we want, not what we need, nobody needs that. And there's a total lack of understanding of what it is and also what it takes. And also what it does for communities, what it does for people. Yeah. And also that we're the ones that have to like stand up and justify it. Like I hate that. I hate being like, okay, so why do the arts matter? (laughs) Have you been to the theatre? Have you had an experience that's changed you? Why do you, like, does a lawyer have to get up and be like, this is why I do my job. Like, this is why I should keep doing my job. Like Nobody else have, has to do that. It's hard enough to do our job. Why do we have to convince you of why we should, yeah. why it's important to you? We also do it for you. There's this sense that like it's a lovely hobby and, you know, we love it and we do love it. But I also hate it sometimes. Yeah. Like it's, it's hard. It's really hard. It's so hard. And I had this amazing German movement teacher in Paris who was like, no one knocked on your door and asked you to be an actor. She was like, stop complaining about how... And there's an element of that, but also like it is, it's a tough gig. Mm. We have to be so open. We have to be so vulnerable. We have to be so generous. We have to be so accommodating. We basically like have to be whatever you want me to be (laughs) 
we have to go out every night. It's not even like film and TV. Theatre acting is, I mean, and that's a different thing, isn't it? But you are like on the line every night. Mm. And you're also always kind of in pursuit of this this flow and this presence that's kind of like transcends everything. It's sort of a magic. But to get there is a lot of hard work mm. and it requires a sort of obsession of the mind, I feel as well, that sort of shuts you out of normal life. It's a totally bizarre thing to articulate. But yeah. I just feel like people think that we are like I remember going to this hen's party of a school friend and speaking to this um, mother of one of the girls who was like, so you're an actor. I go to the MTC. What have you been in? And so I started like telling her about some of the MTC shows I'd done. And she was like, oh, yes, we saw that. I think she said something like, I don't remember you. And I was like, oh, I was... I was the only woman in it. <laughs> and then this happened like I sort of went through a few different things. No. And then she went, oh, yes, so um, bits and bobs. I was like, that's it, isn't it? That's what you think. Bits and bobs, like some little bits of something that's in the crap drawer. Oh you God. just chuck some elastic bands and stapler and little bits and bobs. To be working like, main stage in Melbourne or in Australia is like it's not bits and bobs. That's like top tier. Like, like oh my you goodness. didn't need to be. Like I'm not – it's not like I was Kate Blanchett and <laughs> she was like, oh, yeah, bits and bobs. Like I, but I feel like – It's another example of having so, to justify. Yeah, and you go – my work isn't bits and bobs. It takes a huge amount of commitment and, <laughs> of course. and skill and, and, and yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Like the world thinks we do bits and bobs. Mm. Well, not all the world but a lot of the world, the society, the government, people who don't understand it. It's just People who go to the theatre. They go to the theatre. Yeah, they subscribe. <laughs> bits and bobs. Strange. Strange old thing, isn't it? Is there a dream role or a dream cast Ooh. that you'd like to work with or something you'd like to do? I really want to turn This Is Eden into a television drama. <gasps> yes. So I'm learning screenwriting. Okay. And and I want to employ all my favourite actors. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the dream, isn't it? Like that's what you – once you're in the position to do so, that's what you can do. You can yeah. work with your favourite actors. Yeah. I just think there's so many amazing women like yourself who um, like imagine doing a show about the factory, about Incredible. all those women. It's so great. And I want to do like a – I want to do Jane's World too. And so like the actors will play the past and also the present. <gasps> oh. Mm, that's my idea. So just put it into the world. <laughs> um, also, how great would it be to finally have something on – the women of Australian history, yeah, like you know, know. new Australian history. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of men tromping around the outback and yeah. <laughs> walking the, through the mountains. Sexy and bearded um, <laughs> bush rangers. Learning the country. Ned. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so exciting. I hope <gasps> I can do it. <laughs> oh, of course you can. <laughs> quick fire questions, which never end up being quick fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you have something in your day that you just have to do? I have had that at different stages. Mm-hmm. Meditation's been one of them. But at the moment I'm out of practice. Yeah. I think not 
knockdown, lockdown, knocked me down a bit, uh, which was probably the time to meditate more, but I didn't. But Dion Zanotto has amazing meditations for performance. Oh, truly. They're so good. You can get them on the Art Centre Wellness Collective page or also Spotify Meditations for Performance Energy. Okay. Uh, I think her company is called Performance Based Meditation. I did a meditation course with her last year and that has been amazing. All right. But I haven't been doing it but I did do it yesterday so hopefully I'm back on the train. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, that – Meditation and morning pages have been also something in the past that have really been amazing for me, but again, not at the moment. <laughs> it's such a weird time to be is. having a practice or keeping habits. And yeah, have you found that too? Oh, absolutely. I, I stopped meditating throughout lockdown as well, even though I could feel the entire time just being like, I feel like meditation would be really good for me right now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny though, the yeah. times when you really feel like it's you. I really couldn't it. engage in anything slow paced, like, or mm. like still. I needed like fiery energy. I even stopped running because I was like, it's just too consistent. <laughs> it's like a long, slow paced thing. I like, I couldn't, because I was in that energy the entire time because I wasn't working, I wasn't seeing people, I was just at home. Yep. I needed things to really like lift rather yes. than like continue this yeah, like yeah that is stillness. so true because I felt like that like a real flatness because mm. there wasn't seeing people and oh absolutely working or like spontaneity like yeah there was no spontaneity yeah. so yeah I, I was kind of doing a lot of like high intensity workouts because mm. I was like I just have to like jump around <laughs> when I had the energy to do it yeah and at the moment in this in this like period of change where things are coming back and things are opening up again. Yeah, I, I feel like I have no habits. My only habit is I, I practice yoga every day with my my beloved yoga teacher, Amy Aww. Carmody. <laughs> she has a wonderful online platform and so I I do classes with her every day. She offers like hour-long classes and 20-minute classes. Oh, so that's I can't, I can't miss it. <laughs> yeah, 20 minutes is, yeah. is manageable even on a busy day. Yeah. <laughs> How do you keep your creative practice sustainable? you've been in the industry for so long and you've been a creative human for a long time. Like how do you sustain that energetically Mm. or like financially? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I think it's a bit up and down. Mm. I've definitely noticed over this period too, how um, sometimes I've kind of gone, Oh gee, another grant application or another this or another that. (laughs) And I feel like it's hard. Mm. I just want to sit outside and read and like, It's hard to be motivated, especially around this time when it's felt a bit hopeless. Mm. I think there's so much energy that we give that I think it is really important to have downtime and to have space away from it or to like really be mindful about how I'm taking care of myself around projects, especially when projects are quite emotionally demanding. Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like there is a little bit of... um, sounds really bad but you know like the pain of childbirth and how apparently women forget the pain I think it's a bit of that (laughs) it's like you just let go of the like anything so that you can just carry on yeah sounds really plain (laughs) it's true though especially if you've had quite a difficult experience and then you yeah to kind of keep going to have faith that the next project is going to be good yeah you do have to let Um, go and just you kind of have to have a lot of faith Mm. and and try and have perspective no no project is all good or all bad and and to kind of keep learning from the things that maybe were challenging but also to really probably 
this is what I really need to keep doing more of, like celebrating the wins. Oh, absolutely. And congratulating myself and and not kind of thinking, okay, well, what's the next thing I need to do yeah. or what's the next thing I need to work on or, oh, yeah, but this didn't work or that. Like actually just going, no, that was really good, well done. Mm. Or if it was a hard process, be like, you did it. You did it yeah. even though it was hard. Like feel good. I think that would make it more easily sustainable, a bit more of my own kind of positive reinforcement. I think there's definitely space in a lot of people's lives for more celebration of their yeah. achievements. And celebration with each other. Yeah, for each other as well. Yeah. Like lose some of that competitiveness with others and with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think financially the workshops and teaching have been really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a really lovely way of making money but also being able to still like share what I love and it's become quite a – I guess it was an unexpected thing. I never really thought that I would teach Buffon. <laughs> so now it's – I love it. It's wild. Do you know if there's any coming up in 2021? Oh, oh um, I'm thinking of doing another eight-week one next year. Yes. Oh, I just have to work out the dates. Oh, my goodness. Right. We had email conversations oh, before yes, we even met. Because you and Lee oh, were going to do yes. it. Oh, my God, oh, I'm just were remembering. Were you going to do the, the two-day one? I think you were maybe yeah. going to do the weekend one. And then I think With something. my friend Jamie who came from Portugal. Yeah. She's amazing. She's an amazing actress and teacher. So we were going to do it together. But I'm going to do some next year. Great. So if you oh, that's so exciting. Those. Okay, <laughs> final question. Okay. What brings you joy creatively? Oh, connection connecting with other actors so interesting having <laughs> performed in a one-woman show oh, well, that's the <laughs> because, audience yeah, you get all of the audience <laughs> all connection. the audience becomes an actor <laughs> i know someone said to me i've never sat in a performance before and felt like it asked so much of me <laughs> and i thought that's so true and also were you in the front row <laughs> um <laughs> yeah that was very important that i didn't feel alone in that show obviously oh, absolutely <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that is one of the most joyful things mm. to connect with each other and to laugh in a room and to experience another world and other people's lives together. And I think it's it's working with other actors yeah. in a really beautiful, free and loving way. <laughs> the best. As opposed to the other <laughs> difficult parts. Uh. <laughs> Like the moment on stage when you know you're about to crack up laughing. Yeah. And you can't. I mean, that's really scary also, but joyful. I love those moments. Or a moment like after a show where someone says to you this, that was my experience. Or when you know that someone was sitting in the dark and didn't feel alone. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming oh, in. Thank Emily. you. Thank you. It's been so nice. And I love listening to all of your other episodes. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, they've been really so much goodness. All of them, I'm like, yes, I know that feeling. Yes, exactly. So thank you for doing it. So Aww, thank you for being My pleasure. That was it. That was my chat with Emily Goddard. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. She is such a gorgeous human and I am so grateful that she came to spend some time with me and talk with me and that we've been able to share this conversation with you. Our next episode is the beautiful Olivia Satchel. I'm so excited for you to hear this chat. It will be lovely. She is such an inspiration. But until then, my friends, enjoy your time with family. 
eat lots of good food and read lots of good things and spend some time in the sun and I will be back in a few weeks with another episode. Stay creative. <laughs>